There's really two goals that I have each week I'm kind of confronted with as I start to prepare our sermons, as I start to prepare our time here. There, there's kind of a, a balancing act that I try to, to um, oversee. Because there's two goals we can have in our time in the Word. One is, you know, you consider the audience. And there are people here who are starting with Jesus. That's what I call those who have not really given their life to Christ yet or who haven't fully committed to be that. They're here. They're thinking about that. They're, they're considering what it would be to be a follower of Christ. And these are the people who need to start, who need to make some commitment there. And so our gospel, our, our message is often to try to encourage that, to talk about what that would be and what next steps would be. And so if you're here today thinking about starting, about giving Jesus your life and committing your life to following him, being a Jesus follower from now on the rest of your life, then I'm here to help that. This is what the church is here to do. We're here to help make markers in your life to show that and make that public. Then there's a whole group of people who've already done that and who are here to grow in their discipleship. We're kind of commanded to make disciples or start disciples and grow disciples from the Great Commission. And I try to want to do a little bit of both of that in the sermons. And so it's difficult. And so today is more of a grower sermon for those of us who have committed to following Christ. And, and this whole series of I Hear Him, we're going back now after Easter to the series we were working on where it says I Hear Them. It comes from the Great Commission. Where it says, go and baptize, making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so we've just been kind of very systematically going through the commands that Jesus commanded. And so that we know what we're supposed to be doing as growers. And so as those who are starting with Christ, we can teach them the things that Christ has taught us. And so it, it's what we've been looking at. And so we're going back to that. The question I have is, what do you follow up Easter with? What command do we follow Easter with? And so I thought about, as you see, it's on forgiveness from Matthew's gospel, the 18th chapter, 21 through 35, uh, because Easter really is about our forgiveness. This is what Jesus did to pay for our penalty of our sins so that we could receive the forgiveness for those sins. And so since we've been forgiven, we should go and forgive. And that's kind of why we're following up Easter. Just a quick reminder just to catch you up with where we have been in this series, we've looked at the commands of repent, to be calm, to love God, to love others, to let your light shine, to the command of judging not, which is really talking about helping others deal with their sin, the command to love your enemies, the command to be holy, and the command to remember me, especially as we have the Lord's Supper. And so today we're going to look at this passage from Matthew chapter 18, to look at the command of forgiveness, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one owed him 10,000 talents, was brought before him since he had no way to pay it back his master commanded that he his wife his children and everything he had be sold to pay the debt at this the slave fell down on his face fell face down before him and said be patient with me and i will pay you everything then the master of that slave had compassion released him and forgave him the loan but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii he grabbed him started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At, at this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him. 
Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and repeated to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow slave as I've had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to, over to the jailers until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So we have a very clear command to forgive. Peter starts off with the very question of how many times should I forgive my brother against me? How many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And so Jesus goes into this whole idea, this whole story, this whole teaching about forgiveness. I was looking back over my sermons that I've preached over the last several years And I realized that more than once, this has been a topic. Actually, this exact passage was, I'm sure you remember this well, was the exact passage we preached on three years ago. Uh, In 2014, we were, or 2015, we were preaching this exact same passage in the spring of the year. And so I'm sure you remember that, so there'll probably be some similarities, but it's it's worth repeating. Because the command to forgive is one of the most prominent within scriptures. Luke 14, Luke 11, 4 says, and forgive our sins for we also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Or Matthew chapter six, where it says, for if you forgive others for their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Colossians three, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Ephesians four, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That this idea of forgiveness is over and over within the scriptures. That this is a command and an expectation for us as Jesus followers. Now, from the passage today, I want us to look at two dimensions to a Jesus follower's forgiving. There's two ideas I think in this passage that, that kind of show the breadth and the depth, you know, deep and wide dimensions of what our forgiveness is supposed to look like the first dimension is the one in response to peter's questions how many times should i forgive my brother and so the first dimension is an unlimited dimension peter i love peter because he reminds me well of me he's always getting his foot stuck in his mouth You know, he's got good intentions. He just speaks first and thinks later. And just over and over, his impetuous nature, his, you know, his over-exuberance seems to just kind of get him, you know, to be the butt of the joke. Uh, And and so I appreciate him. He brings me great hope to see him uh, over and over in the scriptures kind of act this way. It gives me hope for myself. So, but Peter's sharp. Peter's caught on to what's going on with Jesus. He knows that that things are different with Jesus than, than with the other rabbis. And he's caught on to this game that Jesus is playing. He remembers well the story on the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus would say over and over and over, you have heard it said to you this, but I say to you. Remember some of the examples. You've heard it said you shall not murder, but I, Jesus speaking, says you shouldn't even be angry with your brother, right? So Jesus 
Jesus is upping it every time. He says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look with lust, you've already sinned. Or he'll say, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, pray for those who persecute you and bless your enemies. So Peter's caught on to that Jesus is kind of upping the game quite a bit here. And so he, he hears this Jesus earlier in the couple of verses before is talking about forgiveness and, and confronting your brother and forgiving them if they repent. And so Peter's figured it out. I can almost see him, you know, calling, going, ooh, 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 I got it, I got it, I know, I know, here's what it is. I have heard it said you should forgive three times, but I bet you say you should give forgive seven times. He's kind of figured Jesus out and he's so excited to say that, you know, because that's what the rabbis taught. The rabbis taught that you were supposed to forgive your brother up to three times. They based it on some passages from Amos, from the Old Testament book of Amos, where it says, for three times forgive, but when fourth one comes, judgment's coming. And so they say, well, that's what God's going to do. That's what we should do. And they even write some, uh, uh, one rabbi wrote from AD 180 says, if your brother sins against you once, forgive him a second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. And so Peter's playing this number games. The rabbis say three times, well, I know Jesus is going to up it, so let's double that, make it six, and for good measure, we'll add one more, make it the perfect number, seven. That's what Jesus is going to say. And you can just see him like, right, right? That's what, seven times, right? And Jesus goes, no, 70 times seven. Peter missed it again. It wasn't about counting numbers. Jesus uses this phrase seven times, 70 times seven, not to say, what's that, 490, Randy? All right, good. Whew. Got that one right. We're not supposed to be counting out 490, you know, and on 491, well, that's it. Sorry, you've used up your allotment of forgiveness. No, it's a hyperbole. Jesus is saying this, our forgiveness is supposed to be an unlimited forgiveness. That every time someone offends us, that there shouldn't, we're not to be counting numbers. And we're not supposed to be keeping track of how many times we've forgiven someone. They shouldn't be able to reach a limit where we say, well, there is no more forgiveness for you. Even if it's the same thing that they've asked forgiveness for a dozen times before. I'll be honest with you. At least in my life, I know that I've gone to the Lord myself and asked forgiveness for the same thing maybe more than a dozen times on certain things in my life. That as we struggle with sin in our lives, I think it's common for us all to have places where we're particularly weak. And we may spend a lifetime going back and saying, Lord, I, I, I did it again. That thing, you know, Paul says that in Romans chapter 7, that thing I didn't want to do, I did. And the thing I did want to do, I didn't do. Oh, woe is me. Haven't we ever felt that way and known that we could go at least one more time? That, that this won't be the time that God says, sorry, you reached your limit. No, His forgiveness for us and our forgiveness for others should be unlimited. The next dimension, though, that comes from response to Jesus, uh, to Peter's question about numbers, how many times. Then Jesus tells that parable about, we, we call it the, it's usually called the parable of the unforgiving servant is how it's often referred to. And he, he shows another dimension, I believe, in our forgiveness. 
One, if the, if the unlimited is the breadth of it, the width of it, how wide it is, this is the depth part, how deep our forgiveness goes. The second dimension is unbounded. It's a, it's a, it's a teaching not about number, the number of times we forgive, but the level of severity to which we are to forgive. You know, there's, when people hurt us, and when we hurt other people, sometimes they're, they're small infractions. What we, we see them in, in levels, you know, that, that someone just said an unkind word when they had, when they had a bad day. And, and we kind of understand that. And we need to forgive them for that, you know, momentary lapse. But then there are some really hurtful things that really hurt us at our core. And the severity of those things grow. And so I think what Jesus is teaching here is that the severity doesn't matter on our forgiveness too. We're supposed to forgive really severe hurts also. The illustration he uses is he kind of he kind of uses this parable to to paint this equation so that we know just how much forgiveness we're supposed to give. And he uses kind of an equation that I want us to kind of see here. First, there's the unimaginable debt. There's this this king wants to settle uh, the accounts with his slaves. And there's one slave who owes him 10,000 uh, 10, talents. Now, what we commentators will tell us is that a talent was the highest amount of currency that they had in that day. It was the biggest amount of currency that they could have. For us in America, it would be a $100 bill. I didn't know that. I had to research this. Uh, our government stopped pr printing. They used to print $500 bills, $1,000 bills, and $10,000 bills. But that stopped around World War II. And so a $100 bill is the highest amount of currency currently produced by the U.S. Treasury. That's the biggest bill we got, 100. And a talent was that in Jesus' day. It was the biggest denomination of currency available all right also ten thousand so he owed him ten thousand of those ten thousand talents the number ten thousand was also the largest number that a greek system used they didn't have a number named higher than ten thousand that was the biggest number for us i just confirmed this with jody because he's another one of those math guys that would know these kind of things i had to look up what's the biggest number in america right now most of you're probably going to say zillion Sorry, no such thing as a zillion. That's a made-up name that's not actually recognized within math. The biggest name named, the biggest number named in our culture right now is called a Googleplex. Yeah, named after Google. That's right. It's a one with a hundred zeros behind it. And that's the, that's the biggest number somebody's been inspired or bothered, whatever, to name in our culture. Probably in my world... A trillion. That's about the biggest number I can even kind of get my head around with. That's bigger than a billion. I know that much. And that's about where I live. So what he's telling him is you imagine owing someone a trillion $100 bills. It's the biggest number and the biggest currency. That's an unimaginable debt. That just blows your mind. Right? And that's what he's saying. This guy owed this guy an unimaginable debt to this guy. It's the biggest of the biggest that could possibly be in his day. A Googleplex of $100 bills would be just mind-blowing. 
And so that's where Jesus starts right. He says, realize what that debt is that you owed. That's one side of the equation. The second side of the equation is what we'll call true debt. Because he goes, after he's been forgiven, he goes and finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, that's not just, you know, pocket change. A denarii was about one day's wage. Okay? And so a hundred of those would be a little over three months wages. So a quarter of what a person would make in a year. That's not chump change. I mean, if it is, if there's anyone here who has three months worth of salary that you don't need, come see me after church. We'll see if we can't help you out with that. I'll find you something to do with it. No, it's, it's a true debt. Jesus isn't making light of the debt that was owed to him. It's a real debt. It's a significant debt. It was a significant offense to this man. But in comparison to what he owed, it just doesn't match up. Right? And so that's what Jesus is saying. So when we forgive people, Jesus isn't saying it doesn't matter. He's not saying the offenses and the sins that people sin against us are trivial. They're not. There's some truth to those. But compared to what we receive, the forgiveness we receive for God for offending a perfect, holy God, they just don't weigh out the same. And so our forgiveness needs to be based not on what we're owed, not the true debt that we're owed, but on the unimaginable forgiveness that we've received. And that's what Jesus' whole point is here. That this forgiveness, yes, there's some bad things been done to us. But it is still, the most horrific thing we've done is still by far less than offending a perfectly righteous, holy creator. And so it should inspire us to be boundless in our forgiving. And so those are the two dimensions that Jesus kind of talks about, I think. You know, unlimited, unboundless, still deep and wide of a Jesus follower's forgiveness that over and over and to great lengths we're willing to be forgiving. Now, there's a part in that, that parable that I find pretty disturbing, to be quite honest with you. When the master finds out that the unforgiving servant was so unforgiving, he goes back. And so I want us to discuss or at least think a moment about the next part of that parable is Jesus teaching revoked forgiveness or an oxymoron. I'm going to tip my hand. It's the oxymoron that I believe Jesus is pointing out here in this parable. And I'll explain that to you. Does God, when we are unforgiving, come and take away the forgiveness that we've been received? We need to remember that our debt was paid. That's what we celebrated last week. That's what we remembered last week. That's what brought us hope last week. That at the cross, forgiveness was purchased for us. That he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And a person may say they believe that and that's great. A person may go even further and say that, that they want to be a Jesus follower and, and that's okay. But the real proof of the pudding and when we understand the forgiveness as we received is when we're obedient to Christ. It, it's, it's one thing to say I believe in Jesus. It's one thing to say I follow Jesus. It's a whole nother thing to demonstrate that obedience, that belief, that faith to following Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 30, 31. And he was saying these things. Many believed in him 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And so there's a group of people saying, we believe you, we believe in you, we believe in you. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, you're going to do what I command. You're going to abide in my word. You're going to continue in what I say and therefore prove that you're really my disciples. And so what I believe Jesus is actually teaching in this uh, that whole part about the, the guy coming back and having the unforgiving servant thrown into prison and kind of revoking that forgiveness he gave them is Jesus is teaching just how ludicrous it is to think that we could be, that there could be such a thing as an unforgiving servant. The whole point is there should be no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. That's an oxymoron. That's a, that's a word that shouldn't exist. That, that if we say we're Christian, then we are by nature forgiving because we have been forgiven. One commentator quoted J.C. Ryle who said this, uh, Now to be clear, our forgiveness of others is not a condition of our salvation. Meaning we don't have to forgive to receive it. But it's a consequence of our salvation. We forgive because we've been forgiven. It's that way around. There is, There will be no forgiveness in that day, the judgment day, for unforgiving people. That's what Ralph said. This commentator, O'Donnell, went on to say, I say it this way. There is no such creature as an unforgiving Christian. And I think that's the point Jesus is making. That being doesn't exist. Christians forgive. We forgive because we have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit indwells us and provokes us to be obedient to the guy we follow who was a forgiver. So there's no faking forgiveness. It's got to be more than words. It's not just simple, I follow Jesus. That that forgiveness becomes a major litmus test for the validity of a Jesus follower's following. That's why I believe the commands to forgive, there are several commands to forgive within the scriptures. And it's that command that has one of the most severe writers tacked onto it over and over and over through the scriptures. Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others for their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The writer, but if you do not forgive, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. Another from repeated in Mark. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against someone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. It's this forgiveness command that has that rider attached on it. It's not love your enemies and if you don't love your enemies, God's not going to love you. It's not attached to those other commands. It's this forgiveness command. Or like James, the brother of the Savior says, for judgment is with, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That it, that our mercy is dependent on the mercy we give. It, it's the litmus test of how we're following. It is a big deal. It is very important, our forgiveness. That there's no such thing as an unforgiving servant. That doesn't exist. 
So let me just go about some, some practical ideas about forgiving. If it's such a big deal, if it's so important. First, let me ask, answer this question. When should we forgive? When should we practice forgiving? Well, when it's asked for. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times and returns to you seven times, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said uh, to the Lord, increase our faith. So when someone asks for it, every time they come, I repent, you forgive. So when it's asked for, we're commanded over and over and over and over and over and over. And we probably need to finish out that last verse. Please help my faith. Because after so many times, it starts to become burdensome, and we're going to need that indwelling Holy Spirit to help us at that point. But every time it is asked for, we're expected to give. When else should we forgive? Well, when it's not asked for, too. When it's unasked for. Mark chapter 11. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your heavenly Father will also forgive your wrongdoings. Now we can we can kind of move around this. All we got to decide is that we'll never pray. As long as you don't pray, you don't have to forgive. But it says if you pray, you need to forgive. So you're gonna have to choose which one you're gonna obey: the command to forgive or the command to pray. You know, because if you you're gonna break one or the other. And so if we're going to pray, we also have to forgive. And the Bible tells us also to always pray, right? And so we have to be forgiving even when it's unasked for. Now, that's very, very difficult. That takes a lot of faith. It actually takes the faith to believe that the Lord will be the just one and not us, which it says he, vengeance is his and not ours. And so we forgive even when we're not asked to. Now, that one kind of hurts. Some more practical considerations for us, just how to practice this. Immensely important. Um, I recently, I've been doing a, a, a discipleship program that I've been studying and sharing with others called Call to Obedience. And one of the first lessons in that is about forgiveness and a real biblical look at what forgiveness actually is. And everyone, from the most seasoned Christian to the most new Christian that's seen that, has just been blown away by really what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. And so some of this is from that, just some practical considerations because forgiving is particularly important. First, some things that forgiveness is not. When we think about forgiveness, we struggle with it, and I think it's because we have some wrong ideas about what forgiveness is. So first, what it is not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is not something you will feel like doing. Most probably you will never feel like it. Uh, that's probably why it's forgiveness is needed when you don't feel like it. Um, it's not something you're going to... And so if you're waiting around to feel like forgiving someone before you do it, well, it's going to be a long wait because it probably won't be a feeling. It's not something that you get warm and fuzzies about. It's also not excusing. I think the lesson there that it is a true debt is an important one. That when we sin against people and when people sin against us, that, that there is an offense. There is a real pain that's caused by how we treat others. It's been going on well since, you know, Cain and Abel, that brothers have been hurting brothers. And so by forgiving someone, you're not saying it's okay. You're not excusing it. You're not saying, oh, it doesn't matter. You're not minimi- minimal, 
minimizing the damage done. That there is a true debt. There is a true pain there. And when we forgive someone, we're not making light of that. We often have a right to be hurt, a right to be angry, a right to be upset, maybe even a right to be uh, compensated. And when we forgive, all we're doing is choosing to deny ourselves our own rights. But we still have the right. You know, Jesus did the same thing. He had the right not to go to the cross, but he chose to do it anyway. He denied his own rights for our good. The third thing that forgiveness is not, it is not forgetting. We often think about, you know, when I forgive somebody, I just have to forget it. And I want to point out, it's not forgetting, it's just not remembering. And there's a difference there. Jesus says he will cast our sins into our lawless deeds and I will remember them no more. That it's a, it's a choice that we act upon. And it's not, it's, it's the kind of forgetting or not remembering that it's in such a way that it's detrimental, it has a detrimental effect on our future relationship. That we don't hold on to it and every time something comes up, we mention it. We bring it back up. You know, wrongs done to us, they will permanently be part of our life. They will permanently be part of our experience. They may guide us in the future to make wiser decisions or, or define how we're able to relate to some people and not relate to them. But if we, but it can't affect, we can't use it. We don't remember it to use it as ammunition against them, either by speaking harshly to them, speaking badly about them to others, or just dwelling on it in our minds so that we can feel somehow justified and, and, and angry on the inside, that we choose not to remember it so it doesn't have detrimental effects on future relationships with that person or with other people too. And so that we kind of choose not to remember it in a negative way, that it is forgiven. We have to kind of voice it to ourselves, I have forgiven that, I have forgiven that, so that we don't have a whole basket of ammunition that we pull out and use against people. So what is forgiveness? One, forgiveness is obedience. As the Bible says, you will prove you're really my disciples if you continue in my word. And because it's obedience and the act of the will, it's a decision. It's a cognitive choice and an act of discipline that I can make myself forgive people. I can practice this even when or especially when I don't feel like it. To live in such a way as that the incident has been forgiven. It's also freeing. One of the biggest problems I see with people who are, who are struggling to get on in life is because there's often unforgiveness in their life. One of the biggest keys to moving forward is unencumbering ourselves from our past and our past hurts. Because those past unforgiven sins that have been against us are anchors that hold very well. And people will get stuck in that moment, trapped in their unforgiveness. And one of the most freeing things we can do is to forgive others because we can move on with our own lives. It's interesting that Satan's counterfeit to forgiveness is suppression. It, Satan doesn't want us to forgive, and so he's taught us and convinces us that if we just ignore it, if we just uh, condone it, if we'll just excuse it, if we'll just minimize it, if we'll just stuff it down, you know, instead of actually forgive, then we allow, then we, he knows we're kind of catching ourselves and binding ourselves to that moment. And stuff down forgiveness uh, and un, uncared about suppression leads to bondage. 
That's what Hebrews is talking about. Make sure no root of bitterness grows in you. Don't allow it. But, but forgive, rip out those roots of bitterness and not suppress them as Satan would have us do, as he would lie to us is the better way. And so why do we often choose that? Because the other thing is that forgiveness is challenging. Real, and as Jesus tacks on at the very end of that parable he's telling, unless you forgive your brother from your heart, that real heartfelt forgiveness is a challenging thing to reach. It may be glib to sit here and talk about how, how important it is, how uh, essential it is to us as Christians, how it may is one of these most difficult things and most important things we can do as a follower. Let me just remind you this. God will not ask you or tell you to do something that he will not also empower you to perform. And so when God tells us to be forgiving, he gives us the resources to forgive. As that one quote I've quoted, when we need to say, Lord, help my faith. When I'm confronted, when I'm confronted with forgiving, Lord, help me do the thing that you asked me to do in obedience. I want to read to you just a quick story. I may have read this three years ago. I don't remember. I think it is worth reading because it's a perfect example of what I think Christian forgiveness is supposed to be like. Showing both the breadth and the depth of forgiveness that we're to have and the dependence on God to do it. it comes from a lady named Corey Tinboom. This is a quote she says. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. It was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from Holland's mind, I think to them, I, I like to, the, to think that that was where forgiveness of sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I say, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, 
fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me of the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Proline, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven and who could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives was a prior condition. We that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. As I still, as, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can't lift, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This, my friends, is what the world needs. A love that can only come from God. That unites people no matter what. No matter what they've done to each other. This is the hope we have at the cross. Forgiveness for ourselves. And then forgiveness for those we need to forgive. May God be praised.